The word of our Lord from the Gospel of John. The disciples went away again to their own homes, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then, she said, then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. And so he said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Then he, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side. I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Here, reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your holy word. Bless it to our hearts and bless it to our minds. And may we be transformed by your Son's glorious resurrection, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
let's be clear. The big question, the biggest of all questions related to Easter Sunday is what exactly are we declaring? What are we talking about when we say that Jesus was raised from the dead? Do we mean that he was spiritually raised? Do we mean that this is some theological principle that ought to inspire us and lift our hearts? Are we simply declaring that death is not the end, that once we die because of Jesus' death, that we go on living because he went on living? No, that's not what the disciples were convinced of. Sure, they thought that when a person died, he would continue on, but they thought that before Jesus, without Jesus. What the disciples, what the early church was insistent upon was that Jesus' body, which had died, his soul having left his body, his dead body was buried in a tomb and was really dead. It was literally, physically dead, his body. That happened on Friday. Saturday was a day of waiting, a day of wondering, a day of wondering what in the world has just happened. The one that we were convinced was the Messiah was killed. Of course, he, he told us that he would be betrayed. He told us that the powers that be would rise up against him, that they would kill him, but... He's really dead. That's the end. Now what? And on that first Easter Sunday morning, the testimony of Mary and the testimony of Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved the testimony of all of the disciples, save only Judas, who has already hung himself, and Thomas, who for whatever reason was not in the room, their testimony was that his dead body was no longer in the tomb, and his once dead body had been raised back up to new life and had been transformed. But mind you, this was a literal, physical body. His body. The tomb was empty. This was not like the myths. That's the story on the internet. That's been the story for the last century or so. That, oh, well, this is... Just another retelling, a Christianized retelling of all the myths of the dying and rising gods. But this is not that. In fact, there are no such myths where a god literally becomes a man, lives a normal human life, dies, and later comes back to life once and for all, never to be repeated. So the idea that this is just another one of those myths itself is a myth. 
I love that today happens to be April Fool's Day. I see that as a joyous challenge. Foolish? Sure, why not? That's what Paul insisted. The gospel is foolishness to the Gentiles. It's a stumbling block for the Jews. He insisted upon it. If our gospel is not foolishness, it is no good news. It is no gospel of the kingdom of Christ, which has come into this world and is broken in upon us. And Paul said, without a literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus, if his body remained in the tomb or was snuck away elsewhere, if it was not his literal, physical body, then we are among all men to be the most pitied because we believe this foolish lie that God raised Jesus from the dead, but if he didn't raise him from the dead, then pity on us. But Paul declared, but Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he has become what we shall become. If we are going to be honest about what the Bible actually claims, we must come to grips with the fact that it insists upon something that flies in the face of everything that we know about life and death. That life ends in death and that there's nothing that can undo death. As I often do, I want to share with you John Updike's seven stanzas at Easter. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's disillusion did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit In the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles, it was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor. Analogy, sidesteppings, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we'll have an angel at the tomb, Make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. What are we declaring? We are declaring the biblical account, the historical, factual account of a literal, 
physical, bodily resurrection. So that begs the question, well, why were the disciples surprised? Why weren't they expecting it? Jesus had been telling them for the previous weeks that he would be betrayed into the hands of sinners, that he would be crucified and killed, and that he would rise again on the third day. And so why were they surprised? Why weren't they expecting it? Well, for the same reason we try to deny its reality. Dead men don't rise. Sure, Jesus had raised Lazarus, but now Jesus is dead. The only one that they had ever known who could raise the dead, he himself is killed. How could the Messiah die? He's supposed to rescue Israel. He was supposed to be the Redeemer. He was supposed to make the bad go away and put all things back together. He must have just been another wonder worker after all. Someone who could impress us and lead us, but in the end would pick the wrong fight and would lose. And we would lose. Martha's earlier word from the raising of Lazarus from the dead tells the tale. Resurrection theology, of which you will find hardly any in the Old Testament. You know, we begin reading the Gospels in the New Testament, and we hear about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and this idea of resurrection and Sabbath keeping, and we think, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's all in the Old Testament. It's not. Resurrection theology was apocalyptic. It was about the end of time. What would happen at the end of things when time is petering out and God is ready to restore His creation? That's when a resurrection would take place. Because of, of course, God would be faithful to His creation. He would be faithful to restore it and renew it and bring life out of death. And so... When Jesus tells Martha, your brother will rise again, she said, well, of course, Lord. I know that at the resurrection, at the end, he'll rise again. But what now? He's dead now. He's gone from us now. And Jesus tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. He's preparing her to have her whole idea and theology of the resurrection of the dead which is to come at the end of time before the judgment when history has come to its final chapter he is telling her that that idea has broken in on this time in this history in this world the resurrection which is about the end of times is taking place in the person of Jesus. No one thought that the Messiah would die and rise again in the middle of human history. Sure, there was Isaiah's prophecy about the suffering servant by whose stripes we would be healed, but 
Israel had long given up hope of that after so many other would-be messiahs who seemed impressive, who led revolts, who led armies, who called disciples to themselves. They were killed and dead and buried. And that was the end of their stories. Only what remained in the tales of families and the tribes of Israel would remain. Israel had begun to realize that perhaps we're the suffering servant. We're the ones who bring healing to the nations by our rejection by the world. But then this man Jesus comes along. A man from Nazareth. Yes, something good can come from there. We've spent three years with Him. We've seen His miracles. We've, we've seen the signs. He's pointed us to who He is. He's broken bread with us. And then He was murdered. John's Gospel here gives us a glimpse of what happens to despair and doubt when they are encountered and collapse before the resurrection of Jesus. We find the despair of the disciples as they were gathered on that first Easter Sunday morning. They had gone their own way, each one assuming that the ride was finally over. And it didn't end well. It ended in darkness. It ended in the death of their would-be Messiah. But notice that Mary was found faithful. She's weeping. She's crying as she goes to the tomb. But she's carrying her spices She's there to care for the body of her dead Lord. She's found faithful doing what needs to be done. Despite the despair. Despite the, the, the end of her hopes. She hangs on in faithfulness. There's a very important life lesson. That we all need to learn. When you don't know what to do, do what you know to do. Be faithful. Hang on. Her despair turns into confusion. Where have you laid him? Just tell me where you've put his body. I'll go and I'll care for it and I'll, 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 I'll deal with this. Let me handle the situation, dear gardener. And then she hears the voice of Jesus calling her name, Mary. Immediately, there's, there's no inkling of despair. Her despair is swallowed up in life and hope, in joy, in the reality that He indeed has come back to life. He's here before me. I can cling to Him. He tells me, don't cling to me. Wait a minute, I can touch Him? I can hug him? 
Go tell my brothers what you've seen. And so she goes back and she tells the disciples, and wouldn't you have it that on Easter Sunday evening, they're all gathered around, probably eating some leftover ham with some sandwiches. They probably weren't eating ham. We're eating ham. Yep. <laughs> Who's got a honey bake? Don't, don't show me a hand. Don't show me a hand. I'll get jealous. Jesus walks into the room. Doors are barred shut. Take a look at my wounds. Don't, don't doubt. Believe. We find doubt in the disciples, not just Thomas. He gets a bad rap. I love doubting Thomas. Don't count him out. He's just calling things like he sees them. He's just calling balls and strikes, he'll tell you. Unless I see the nail prints, unless I see where the spear entered his side and blood and water flowed out, unless I'm able to touch his physical body, I cannot and I will not believe it. But notice that Jesus doesn't shut down our questions. He meets them squarely. A week later, I think it's, it's fascinating and probably a bit amusing that Jesus gives it eight days. He's just going to let that doubt simmer a bit. Imagine the conversations that are taking place. They've clearly all taken vacation from work. They're spending time together and eight days pass and the following Sunday evening, Jesus comes in again. And this time Thomas is there. He's willing to at least stick around with the old gang. And he begins to speak to Thomas right point by point into his doubt. Take a look at the nail prints, Thomas. Take a look at my side where the spear entered, where blood and water flowed. Here, touch me. Feel my wounds. They are for you. And Thomas is overcome with joy. My Lord and my God. His doubt crumbles at the risen Christ. You can imagine the other disciples are kind of ribbing Thomas like, yeah, he, he's just doubting. He, he's not believing the resurrection. We told you what happened. And Jesus says, don't be, don't be doubting, Thomas. Be believing. You've seen and believed. Blessed are those who haven't seen and believed. And you can imagine the disciples thinking, yeah, yeah, Thomas, come on. Come on, get with the program. But eight days prior, they were in that same boat. Because Jesus had told them the same thing. Believe. Look. Touch. When it comes to doubt, 
There are no bad questions. We always hear that. There are no bad questions, no stupid questions. You know, our, our elementary school teachers like to tell their students that. High school student teachers tend to say, no, that was a pretty stupid question. But we hear the, we hear the story, there are no bad questions. But the only bad question is the one that's asked by a skeptic who's either too stupid, too lazy, or too apathetic to seek its answer. Those are bad questions. Wallowing, doubt, wallowing in doubt simply for the sake of doubt and thinking, oh, there's something beautifully tragic about my doubt. That's a bad question. That's a bad way to live in doubt. But Jesus doesn't hide from our doubt. He confronts it. He meets it squarely. Why does this matter? Why does any of this matter? Because it changes everything. That's not clickbait. It really does change everything. It turned reality on its head. It shook the earth to its foundations. It changes our understanding of what salvation is. Because salvation has become more than mere forgiveness. It's about new life. If we've been buried with Christ in baptism, then we've been raised up with Him, the Apostle Paul would say. We're not simply given a clean slate. We're giving new life, new birth. It changes what we understand about what happens after death because death is no longer about merely continued existence. It is about resurrection. As N.T. Wright puts it, it's not about life after death. It's about life after life after death. That God will raise up our bodies. And it changes our understanding of who Jesus is. He has been vindicated as the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord's anointed. He has been vindicated and He has been confirmed as Thomas declared, as our Lord and our God. His resurrection demands a verdict on our part, either rejection or belief. Going back to John's first chapter, you'll remember that Jesus, the incarnate word, came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, to them he gave the right, the authority, the power to become children of God. Not born of flesh and blood, not born of the will of man, but born of God. Born again. One of the most... accounted for and historically evidenced event in ancient history demands that we either reject the claims of the scriptures or believe them. In the end, there really is no middle way. There is no middle ground. There's no way to 
have our cake and eat it too. We will either embrace the resurrected Lord Jesus or we will say, impossible, I will not believe. Throughout John's gospel, he's given us honest pictures of people like Nathaniel. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Really? The Messiah? Honest pictures of people like Nicodemus. Teacher, we know you've come from God. Nobody could do what you've been doing except that God has sent him. But can we keep this just between the two of us? We find him back at the cross after Jesus' resurrection or death with Joseph of Arimathea to care for Jesus' crucified body. We find honest pictures of people like Mary. Where have you laid him? I'm looking for our teacher. And honest pictures of people like Thomas. I will not believe unless I am confronted with the reality and the proof of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus changes things. It affects us. It is about new creation breaking in. The activity of the church in the world is about taking part in that new creation, taking part in that kingdom of heaven which has come to dwell on earth and will one day come in its fullness. And we have been raised to, do, to new life in the resurrection of Jesus. Our lives can be transformed by His resurrection power. The trajectory of our lives can be changed. The character of our lives can be changed. Notice I say character, not the reputation, because the world and our neighbors might think that we're fools. They might think that we're crazy. Other Christians might think we're nuts. That we've lost our minds. The trajectory of our lives, the character of our lives, and the animating principle of our lives by God's Spirit can be transformed by the resurrection of Jesus. Paul told the Romans, If he who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Hallelujah. Christ has been raised. And we too have been raised with Him. Let us pray.